Uh, we're going to start a, a new series together on um, the idea of, of Easter and what it represents, or some of you might refer to it as Resurrection Sunday and what it represents for us. I, I would say for the Christian life, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the pinnacle of Christianity. In fact, it is the greatest event in all of history. Um, yeah, I, I think personally, I like to see old battlefields. Like last year, I remember I went to Montana to just see Custer's, uh, visit a friend, but I went to where Custer's last stand was. Uh, it was incredible just to see uh, that layout of how that battle took place. And, uh, you know, it didn't go so well for Custer, but to be present on those battlefields is something I- incredible to see what was won, what was lost, you know, just the historical event there. But, you know, we, you study the battles of history. There's no greater battle that was fought than what Jesus did for your soul on the cross. Um, that, that was the greatest battle in all of history. In fact, the, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the grave, we're the, the most pitied of all people on the earth, followers of Jesus. His resurrection is the pinnacle of Christianity. And in fact, when you study the early disciples, uh, when Jesus went to the cross, the disciples all ran away scared, except for John, the youngest of the disciples. He was there at the cross, but the rest all ran away scared. And then all of a sudden they come back with, with this fire for their faith in the Lord. And the reason for that is because they couldn't deny the fact that they had seen a dead man walking. They saw Jesus come back from the grave and, and, and they lost their lives. They were martyred for that proclamation. They could not deny that truth. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus becomes the pinnacle of our faith and the hope of our own resurrection because of what Jesus has done. And so over this series together, we're going to look at the significance of the cross and especially what Jesus says from the cross, his his words from the cross. Um, When we talk about Easter season, historically, Christianity has tried to do things to help us recognize the significance of what has taken place here. In fact, I mean, we, we've done as a church, I just told you about the invite on Easter Sunday, invite your friends and family. Here's a card, you know, we're going to have a cookout, make it a big deal because this is the biggest deal on our calendar, right? And, and the church has tried to respond that way. In fact, in the fourth century, uh, the, the church started, not every church, but uh, Christianity started to celebrate uh, something that's called Lent happens 40 days before, uh, it begins 40 days before Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and the reason for this is because they wanted people to prepare their hearts for the significance of what Easter was. Now I'll tell you, the purpose of Lent has kind of molded and changed over the years and, and people's intentions behind it aren't always good. Like uh, people have Lent season come around and they're like, uh, the encouragement during Lent is to get rid of something that distances you from your relationship with God. But people don't really use it for that. Sometimes they're like, okay, I do bad things. I want to do good things. And, and like, if you just view life as doing bad things and want to do good things, you can do that all day long and never get closer to God, right? So, so I'm not telling you to observe Lent or not observe Lent. I, I, frankly, I don't care. What I would really rather you do is in your heart, find ways to pursue Jesus for all that he is and all that he means to your life, right? And so if you want to call that Lent and make it last 10,000 days, I don't care. Like, but, but the point is, is, is to remove things in your life that just create that distance from you and God. But unfortunately, some people make it about you know, bad and good. I want to do good and not bad. And so they're like, okay, I, I need to diet. Or like, I, I'm, way on, I'm on my smartphone way too much. Or, or like, I, I'm watching too much TV. And so I cut all the bad things to not do those things. But the reality is, you may not ever get closer to God, right? Um, when I think about this Easter season, though, and I think about maybe the idea of Lent or, or just drawing near to God. 
I say, if, if there's one thing I, I think I could hope for us that we, we could find ourselves getting rid of to really appreciate what Easter is, um, I would say you would make the most out of Easter if what we would give up is our guilt and shame. And we would embrace the very purpose for which Jesus went to the cross for us. I can't think of a better way to embrace the grace that's demonstrated to us than, than the forgiveness of the guilt and shame we have in our lives and because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Um, you know, to really appreciate the cross, I, I think for us, rather than just talk about a holiday or Lent or Easter, whatnot, it, we should just look at the cross itself. And to find out exactly what Jesus has done for us. Um, when you think about the cross of Christ, it tells us in John chapter 19, verse 1, that um, Jesus was scourged, he was flogged, he was lashed for, uh, for us. And so his punishment begins with this scourging, which eventually leads to the crown of thorns on his head and being beaten and ultimately to the cross. But uh, when, when the Jews would lash somebody... Uh, their law said that they would be lashed up to 39 times, save one. So 40 was considered a person would die, 39, they could endure it and still survive. So the Jews would lash someone 39 times, save one. However, Jesus wasn't scourged by the Jews, he was scourged by the Romans, and the Romans didn't have such a law to govern them. In fact, when, when Jesus was sentenced by Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 1, uh, for the Romans to take him out, the Roman soldiers to take him out and scourge him, uh, the people that carried out that duty were really professional executioners and torturers. And that was their job in Rome. And they had become experts on torturing someone to the point of an inch of their life and then relenting. Well, I say that, but reality is history tells us that about half of those that were scourged died just from the scourging. You can imagine when Jesus was being scourged that by the time he, he walked away from, from this moment or someone drug him away from this moment that his back, shoulders, sides were just shredded. In fact, beyond that, the Gospels just record what happened with Jesus. It says in John 19, Pilate took Jesus, had him scourged. In verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put that on his head. In Mark 14, verse 65, some began to spit on at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Isaiah 52, verse 14 describes this, what Jesus looked like prophetically before this event happened. But it said this, his appearance was marred more than any man. He was unrecognizable. And this was before the cross. Let me ask. If you were in, those, in this similar position, how would you respond to that situation? Now, I know the Roman soldiers likely had some sort of expectation for the type of response that they would receive from people. Cursing, threats, screaming. Like, if you were about to lay me down and nail me to a cross, <laughs> I don't think I would be like, oh, here you go, right? Like, I, I will turn it into a vicious animal. Like, if you put your arm near me, I will bite it off, man. <laughs> like, like, there, is, there is nothing calm about this moment. So the soldiers had a, a, an expectation as to what they would receive from individuals in which they would torture or execute. But Jesus didn't react in that way. Instead of screaming, threatening, or cursing, Jesus did the unimaginable. 
his reaction might leave one to think that he was intentionally going to the cross. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he provides for us seven statements in the Gospels. Short statements, but I would say world statements. Um, Jesus in this moment, knowing it's the greatest battle fought in history for your soul, the world will remember this day. And what he says is important. Words carry power, like James tells us that, the, the tongue has power, And there are particular times within our lives when we recognize that the words that we say carry even more weight. Like a child's first words. (laughs) I can think with our our three kids, the first two, I was all about getting them to say dad first. And then they did, right? And then we had a third one. I'm like, okay, I got to throw my wife a bone here. So so with the third kid, I'm like, every chance I get, I'm like, mom, 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 mom. And lo and behold, his first word comes out and he says, dad. It's like, oh, man, I'm horrible. The first words you you remember uh, from your kid or even last words. You'll set up a bedside vigil next to a loved one just to hear those dying words that they express from their heart. And here in the Gospels, the Gospel writers record Jesus' last words. Not lengthy, but important. Last words as if to invite you to lean in to understand exactly what's on Jesus' heart as he gives his life on the cross. And to the shock of the soldiers, to the shock of the world, rather than curse, rather than fight, Jesus embraces the cross. And what does he say in Luke chapter 23? His final statements, his last words, as Jesus, this is the first statement that he makes on the cross out of the seven statements, but his first statement of his last statements, it's a prayer. And here's what he says, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In in this moment, being tortured unjustly, being perfect, and having people come against him, and the thought on Jesus' mind is a prayer of forgiveness. Now, when when Jesus utters this prayer, uh, I want us to know in in this particular context, Jesus is giving this statement, I think, to specific people around him. But when it comes to these words, I want want us to know these words um, that we should never stop in the struggle of of making these words personal to us and, and living these words out. For many of us, we're probably familiar with this statement, right? And Jesus, in the immediate context, he is, he is expressing this to people around him. But in a larger context, it carries so much more weight than just the immediate crowd around him. And for you as a believer, in, in reading these words, I mean, it's in the text of Scripture for more than just the particular context. And struggling with what this, this phrase means and making this personal and living it out becomes the challenge of, of really demonstrating our lives if we understand what Easter is about. And I'll explain all that, unpack all that in just a minute. But in this immediate context, Jesus is making this directly to the, the people around him. He is praying this on behalf of the people around him. The reason I know that is because of the next verses. It says this, and the people stood by looking on, not really doing anything about it. 
I'll say he's, he's referring to the crowd here. In this crowd, most of the people are against him, right? I mean, this is the crowd that in Jesus' triumphal entry a week ago said, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then just a few hours ago are chanting, crucify him. But within this crowd, there are a few people that love Jesus. There's, there's um, John the apostle who's there. Jesus' mother is there. But for the most part, the, the crowd is against Jesus. And even the rulers, it says, were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It goes on just a couple of verses later and says, even the criminals crucified on either side of Jesus are mocking Jesus. And so Jesus is giving this prayer He's doing it on behalf of those who are crucifying him. I even think Jesus is likely praying this prayer for those who should have been there that had abandoned him, his disciples. But when you read this passage, I I think the context is much bigger than the general audience that's around Jesus. In fact, uh, Scripture takes it further in in that for us. In fact, Peter, in reflecting on this moment, said this in chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins, talking about all of us, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Peter's recognizing this, that we belong to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, but he bore our sins that we could live for the kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness, and because of his wounds and and accepting our punishment on this cross, by his wounds you have been healed. In fact, Peter, wanting us to see the significance of this moment, is quoting all the way from Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 53 to help us recognize that God didn't just plan this off the cuff, that this has been God's intentions from the beginning for your soul, this battle taking place. Isaiah 53, surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we have been healed as if to say this if God can forgive those that put him on the cross surely he can forgive you I mean simply put this moment on the cross I think demonstrates to us two powerful thoughts one is the great expense of our sin. I mean, look what our sin led to. It's the crucifixion of God himself. God becomes flesh and dies for you and for me. The greatness of our sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, And those that fail to recognize the significance of this moment for their soul, he says, um, if righteousness could be achieved through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Meaning, don't undermine this moment. Don't make light of this moment. Don't think you can go out of this world and live religiously and satisfy God. It's not possible. If it were possible, Jesus would have never died. But because Jesus came and Jesus died, Jesus is demonstrating to us the significance of what this moment represents for your life. If there were another way, Paul is making the argument, the very last verse of Galatians 2, then God would have led us to that other way, but there was no other way. Because if righteousness could be achieved through the law, then Christ would have died needlessly. When we call Jesus a Savior, 
we're not going to recognize the significance of that word Savior or salvation until we see the desperation that rests for our soul. We need him. Not like you, you, you know, lack the, the basic essentials of life. Even deeper than that, you, your soul You're created as a being with a soul designed for God. You need him. Uh, One of the the incredible verses, I think, in Scripture that helped me see this, um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. I used to read this verse, and I want to be honest and just say I used to read it wrong. Um, I would read this verse, and it says this. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I used to read that verse and think, yeah, Paul was a bad sinner. Good thing God saved him. He ended up becoming the most incredible Christian ever. He was a bad sinner, right? Um, but here's the thing. It never says Paul was a sinner. What Paul says, it says, I am a sinner. <laughs> Paul sees his present condition apart from God as Sinful. And when I think about Paul, I used to read this and think, you know, Paul was, he was a bad sinner. He, he persecuted the church. I mean, he's responsible for killing Christians, putting Christians in jail. He was a bad sinner. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, it says about Paul uh, that those, that the people knew that the one who used to persecute the faith has now become a, a follower of Christ, and that's encouraging people to follow Jesus. And Paul was a bad sinner, but when Paul talks about his life here, he doesn't just say that he's, he was a bad sinner. He says, I am the chief of sinners. If Paul calls himself a sinner, <laughs> what does that make me? <laughs> I would say it like this. If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. When Jesus tried to get us to identify this when he preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to Matthew 7 because people in his day believed they could live religious law and live it righteously. And Jesus shows up and he's like, look, the law's not given to you to understand that you can live righteously. In fact, the law's given to you to condemn you. And here's how Jesus explains it. He says this. Um, he says, unless you live a life more righteous than the Pharisees, you can't attain eternal life. And at that time, people, people thought to themselves, who in the world could live more holy than Pharisees because they were the religious leaders at the time? And Jesus goes on, and he says this, uh, you've heard it said, do not kill, but if you've, if you've had anger in your heart, that makes you a murderer. You, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but if you've lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The problem isn't your behavior, the problem is your heart. And you and I know, when you're by yourself, <laughs> the thoughts that you consider, the things that you think? What if in the quietness of your own heart, your personal thoughts and intentions weren't able to be hidden anymore? What if it were exposed to the world? God sees that. God sees that heart. And that's what Paul is wrestling with in this verse, that he is a sinner. Now, he's saved by Christ, but he is a sinner. Now, uh, you can look at the thought of being a sinner and say, okay, thanks, Nathaniel. I thought you wanted me to get rid of guilt and shame. Remember, this is what Easter's about, and we're getting rid of guilt and shame, and so far off the start, here we are, and now all we're talking about is my guilt and shame, right? No, just hold on for a second, because I I want us to recognize this, uh, because if if we don't talk about guilt and shame and sin in these moments, we're never going to see the significance of what Jesus does in our own lives 
But seeing the significance of what Jesus has done over your life and the battle he fought for you plays tremendously in how you demonstrate a, a life of pursuing Jesus in this world. And so the guilt and shame becomes an important part uh, to recognizing what God then desires to do in it through the cross. So at the cross, we see the great expense of our sin, but even better than that, we see the even greater love of our God. What drove him there? Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. In the midst of your sin, Jesus loves you. In fact, um, The Apostle John was the only disciple we know that was at the cross, right? And John, in 1 John chapter 4, he starts to reflect on this moment. In fact, in verse 8, he says, God is love. And then in verse 9, he then takes that thought into the cross as he describes the moment. He says this, but this, the love of God, was manifested. So if you want to know how God is love, this is how we know God is love. It was made known to us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So in the death of our sin, we now have life in Jesus. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Look, he's saying like this. In your sin, your demonstration of sin means you reject the kingdom of God. You don't love God. But in that lack of love on your behalf, Jesus still loves you. So while you look at the cross and see the greatness of your sin, you can also look at the cross and see the even greater love of your God. No sin you've ever done can outdo the love and grace of God over your life. That's the power of this cross. That's why this becomes the anthem of the church. This is why this battle is so important that no matter how dark you may feel you have been in your life or are in your life, Jesus' love is greater still. And when you experience love like that, the welling up within your soul is to love in response. So let me tell you like this. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross to put your sins behind you that you can experience his love in this moment. (laughs) So that he becomes the propitiation for our sins. The expense of our sin and the love of our God met in one word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is what Jesus said on the cross, right? Father, forgive them. And to be forgiven, someone must bear the cost. The forgiver bears the cost in order to forgive. And that's what this word propitiation demonstrates. It's satisfying the wrath of God. He's bearing the consequences of the cost of your sin so that you can be free in him and free to experience his love. Forgiveness allows us to walk in the newness and experience the purpose for which we were created. Forgiveness is a hallmark of our faith. That's what they say in in 1 Corinthians 5, right? You become a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. So while Paul describes himself as a sinner, yes, yes, but he's also new in Jesus because God's love on the cross has covered his sin. When the Lord looks at you, God sees the goodness of Christ over you. So it tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin who knew no sin that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus takes on your sins so that when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. 
At the cross, we see the greatness of our sin, but we see an even greater love in our God. Um, Most of us are familiar with this story. So let me ask you this then, and the application of it. How do you know if you grasp God's forgiveness in your life? How do you really know that you can make this application? Uh, I think when Luke is recording this for us, guys, he's, he's recording this as, as more than just words to think or to intellectually know. But rather, he's recording this as a life in which we now emulate and live because if Jesus is our Savior and King and we pursue him, then we live this type of life. How, how do we know that we really grasp God's forgiveness in our life? Ready for it? And how will you forgive others? You grasp the forgiveness of God in your own life when you demonstrate how well you forgive others. And let me show you. Because in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, John goes on from here to make the application of God's love. How then should we respond? Verse 11, he starts to tell you. He says this, beloved, meaning he's now identifying you as the loved because God has loved you. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. Okay, that's important. No one has seen God. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. No one has seen God, right? But he goes on and says this. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Like No one has seen God at any time, but look at this. You're made in the image of God. And when you gather together to worship God and in worship God, you choose to love one another. You're emulating the goodness of this God to each other. God's love becomes tangible to us because we're made in his image and in his image, we desire to love or we should love because God is love. If God is love, his people love, right? If you love as God calls you to love, you love the things that God loves and what God loves is people. And so when we talk about modeling this in our lives, we love this is the way we reflect it. Now, let me tell you this in case you caught it. You, you probably may have already identified it. This, this says nothing about forgiveness. Like, why in the world am I telling you that the way that you recognize in your life, if you grasp God's forgiveness in your life, is by how you forgive others, when First John, in replying to the cross, isn't even talking about forgiveness? How in the world can I make that leap? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> well, let me explain. You're never going to love the way God calls you to love when you walk in unforgiveness. It's impossible. The reason is because forgiveness is about the past and love is about the present. And when you don't forgive, you become trapped in the past, unable to live in the present. When you think about your relationship with God, Jesus goes to the cross to die for your sins. Why? To put your sins in the past. For what reason? So you can live in love and love in a relationship with him in the present. Forgiveness becomes the basis for you to experience the love that he desires to demonstrate in your life. Like God is love and, and God can never be any different than love. God is love. But in your life, you never connect to that love the way you were designed to until you walk in the newness of forgiveness in Jesus. And in the newness of that forgiveness, then you receive that love for which he wants to demonstrate and lavish in your life in a very personal way. All of eternity. 
And so when John is saying in 1 John chapter 9, and he calls us to then live this way, when we are to love one another, we can never love the way God calls us to love if we live in unforgiveness, because unforgiveness traps us in the past and never allows us to live the way God calls us to live in the present. God's call in our life is to love. Unforgiveness makes you a prisoner of the past. But forgiveness lets me walk in his love in the present and to enjoy that love with each other as we forgive. So how do you know you grasp the forgiveness of God in your life? as it's modeled in this verse by the way that you forgive one another because in that forgiveness opens the door to begin to experience the love for which you were created. Listen, guys, I don't want to pretend like the things you've gone through in your life haven't been hard. I I know things are. But I do want to tell you that what Jesus has done for you is far more important than to allow unforgiveness to trap you in the past. What God calls you to in him is far greater than anything that you can conjure up in in your own vengeance by holding on to unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, or forgiveness, I should say. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to just sweep things under the rug. In fact, I think that can be unhealthy. I mean, talking, uh, talking about issues that create division become important. But at the end of the day, you've you got to forgive in order to experience the love which you were created to in Christ. And it doesn't mean you have to be best friends. Nor does it mean you have to forget. Like, I, I think in my, in my own family's life, uh, we had a few family members that struggled with um, addiction. And I remember as a, a young person in high school, they would come live with us for a little bit and, and then move away. And there happened a few times where, where they stole some things. Right Now, um, we forgive them, and I remember we invited them back into our home, and they stayed with us again. But we didn't forget, because we're not stupid. And so because we love them, what did we do the next time they came in our home? We hid our valuables. <laughs> we forgave them, but we got rid of the things that were tempting them, because we love them. So forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting but for forgiveness um, for us gives us the opportunity to, to walk in the newness for which we were created in Jesus. New creation, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Love is about living in the moment for what God has called you to. If you, if you hold on to this past, you can never step into where Jesus wants to lead your life. And I know it's hard. Or it can be hard. In fact, just to highlight that point, I, I want to... I wanna, point you to another apostle or disciple of Jesus, Peter. First Peter chapter two, Peter is reflecting on the cross as well and what this means for believers. But when he's reflecting on it, he's reflecting on it in the life of Christians that are being persecuted. In fact, if you go read just a couple verses before this, you see Christians enduring hardship. And then Peter has to respond to this moment. Okay, now how do we live in our lives because of the cross of Christ? He says this, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What's that example? He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. 
What he's saying in verse 22 is, look guys, anyone that would have been justified to bring down wrath at any moment, it was Jesus. He's perfect, we're not, right? If Jesus wanted to call down legions of angels to, rec- uh, to rescue him from the cross and just destroy and obliterate this earth, Jesus could have done it. But even in his perfection, what did he do? Being reviled, he didn't revile in return. In fact, what he did do is he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. When we walk in unforgiveness, what we're confessing without maybe saying it is what I want to do is greater than what Jesus has already done. I want to hold in vengeance. I wish ill will on somebody. Like, how, how do you know you've really forgiven somebody? I would say it's like this. When, when your first thoughts of them aren't to look for their demise, but rather God's will to be made known. Like if you're hoping just for their downfall and that's all you just look for and you're just stuck in that, you haven't let go of it. There are consequences to sin and I'm not saying if things have been wrong to you. I mean, we have, we have police and things like that for a reason, right? Um, but what God wants to do is greater than anything you can do holding on to it yourself. In fact, it keeps you from where God's called you. And so he says with Jesus, he entrusts himself to one who judges rightly. It becomes a faith, faith test for us. Like forgiveness, guys, isn't an emotion. It's a step of faith. I know when it comes to forgiving, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it wraps, conjures up all of these feelings for us. But there's also a step of faith of saying, look, God, I'm going to trust that you love me. And what you've got is better. And where you call me to be right now is not stuck in this, but with you and far greater things that you can do in my life by living in the love which you've called me to than for me to stay in my own personal vengeance here in the past. God takes care of the past so that we can walk with him in the future. Here's the irony. So many times in our lives, we often look for grace for ourselves but we demand justice for others. And how hypocritical of me it is to seek forgiveness but demand justice on others. Peter wants us to see this rescue mission of Jesus and not only this rescue mission of Jesus but our calling to join him on this rescue mission. If we can't forgive, how could we ever participate? And you think about Jesus and his ability to forgive, it allowed him to come on this rescue mission for your soul. Because of his desire to forgive, he was able to pursue your soul while you you were yet a sinner. And now in emulating that, he calls you on the same rescue mission in this world that opposes his kingdom of light. If, If you don't fight for the people in this world, who will? In praying for his enemies... Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Not only did Christ set before us a perfect example of how we should treat those who wrong us, but he also taught us never to regard any as beyond the reach of his grace. The truth is, um, we all struggle to forgive. That's why a passage like 1 John 4 and 1 Peter 2 exists. <laughs> and, you know, but the cross at the same time shows us uh, 
that love and forgiveness, it involves sacrifice of the forgiver, right? In 1 Peter 2, 24, beginning of the verse, he bore our sins on the cross, but it also provides the power to bring newness of life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 at the end, by his wounds we are healed. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver. But forgiveness is the very source that brings newness of life and allows us to walk in love. Both, both for the forgiver and the forgiven. As forgiver, it lets you release being trapped and controlling the past. As forgiven, it lets you walk away from the identity of the past and the newness of life. For us to live this out, it, it is, it's a struggle. One of my, um, one of the artists that I enjoy in life is a man by the name of Rembrandt. One of the reasons I enjoy him is because he's about the only Protestant painter <laughs> that you can find in church history. But Rembrandt um, was alive in the 17th century, and um, I think we should all in a way, model a life like Rembrandt. And what I don't mean is buy a beret and look like that. But, but what I do mean is, is what his heart pursued in his paintings. Um, Rembrandt in the 17th century started to paint biblical pictures in a unique way. Uh, up until this time of Rembrandt, people would take pictures of Jesus, pick pictures of Mary, and sort of write the, put these like halo things around any biblical event. And, and Rembrandt started just painting things more realistic. Um, but, but, the unique thing about Rembrandt is that he also made it personal. The cross is the greatest battle in history. And you demonstrate your faith in the, in the cross by how you forgive. And you become a forgiving soul when this cross becomes personal to your own life. Right? And I think Rembrandt knew that. Which is why when Rembrandt painted the raising, what's called the raising of the cross, Rembrandt at the bottom of Jesus' feet included himself in the painting. Rembrandt in these moments saw the depth of his sin. But at the same time, he also saw the greater love of his God. Father, forgive. Rembrandt sees Jesus taking care of his past so that he can walk with Jesus in his love in the present. When we see the depth of what God has done for our soul, who are we not to join him on that rescue mission? Who are we to live trapped in the past? What God calls you to in this moment in history is far greater than to let the past have control of you. His love has the power to change. Starting with your heart. If what? We simply trust. You're ready for God to move when your heart is forgiven and your heart is forgiving. How well do you know if you understand this phrase, Jesus utters, Father, forgive them. It's seen in how well you forgive others. Not just saying it, but demonstrating it. Does your forgiveness have action? Does it desire your vengeance or God's hand of grace?
This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.